With more than 500 programs a year, there's never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Mary Cranston. I am uh, the former partner, a chair and partner of the Pillsbury Law Firm, uh, past trustee of Stanford University, and a former chair of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. And I am your moderator today for today's program with Stanford University President Mark Tessier-Levine. The Commonwealth Club has, of course, shifted from in-person programs to virtual events, and the club is very grateful for the support of our viewers. The club would appreciate your consideration for a donation to support its work, and if you wish to do so, please click on the blue Donate button at the top of the YouTube chat box or visit the club's website at commonwealthclub.org. We also want to remind you to submit questions via the chat room uh, on your screen, and I'll get to as many as possible in the program. And now it's my very great pleasure to uh, introduce our guest, Dr. Mark Tessier-Levine, the president of Stanford University. Today, we're going to have a timely conversation with Dr. Mark Tessier-Levine on how the pandemic has catalyzed change in higher education and how universities can help define new ways of working together to solve the great societal challenges that we face. The pandemic has, of course, magnified our social and economic issues. And as we move into a post-COVID world, um, President Tessier-Levine has some very interesting perspectives on how universities can apply the foundational knowledge within their walls to the greater and more effective contributions beyond them. Dr. Tessier-Levine is a pioneering neuroscientist, biotechnology entrepreneur, and academic leader who became Stanford University's 11th president in 2016. At Stanford, he has championed a model for a purposeful university that accelerates the application of knowledge to tackle the world's greatest problems and anchors research and education in ethics and civic responsibility. So I'm very excited to be here today with you to hear this wonderful program, and I want to welcome Dr. Tessier Levine. So let's get started. Um, President Tessier-Levine, could you start with just some opening thoughts on how higher education has been affected by the pandemic this last year? Well, uh, thank you, Mary. And first of all, thank you so much uh, for having me. Uh, The the Commonwealth Club has a a wonderful history of discussing uh, important and and timely issues, and I'm I'm really delighted uh, to be uh, a part of this. uh, So so thank you. Um, I really want to start, uh, Mary, by saying how hopeful I am about the future of higher education, that despite the tremendous difficulties of the last year, um, I believe that higher education is very well positioned to amplify our contributions to society going forward. And so perhaps I can say a few words of what the difficulties have been, but why now I I am so hopeful. Um, uh, This last year for higher education in general uh, has been so difficult as it has been for all sectors of society and everyone in society. For us, It's meant profound disruptions to our core missions of of teaching um, and uh, research. Um, uh, In terms of teaching, uh, of course, 
Most courses had to go online because of the pandemic, the shutting down of classrooms, the shutting down of, of dormitories. Um, over the year, uh, much uh, of the education has remained virtual. In some cases, a little bit of hybrid um, uh, uh, in-person classes, depending on state and local rules or, or campus um, circumstances. But uh, uh, no matter what, it's been profoundly dif- uh, disruptive for, for our faculty and for our students uh, who had to learn new ways of teaching in the case of our, our faculty, new ways of learning for our students who uh, uh, mostly uh, have done this from home. Uh, research also, another core mission, has been profoundly affected. Some research that, that's done uh, at the university can be done online, but much of it requires specialized facilities, laboratories with, with specialized equipment, access to archival materials. Uh, many of our faculty do field work. All of that has been very profoundly uh, impacted as well. And of course, in terms of finances, we, we've had uh, just tremendous constraints with loss of revenue streams from room, room and board, um, tuition loss for students who decided to take a year off. Many of them uh, decided to do that uh, and other sources of income uh, that have dropped and, and it's created real, real hardship um, uh, across the country and especially at small colleges that have tighter budgets to, to start with. Um, uh, in addition to, to those, those core problems, um, of course, uh, uh, again, as with all aspects of society, COVID has had very disparate impacts. Everybody's been affected but some people more than others. I, I, I worry especially about the students whose family circumstances don't allow for uh, a good online experience. They might have poor broadband or they might not have a, a quiet place at home where they, they can focus. Um, our faculty and staff with, with young children whose, um, whose daycare um, or, or schooling have been compromised, of course, have a, a bigger burden. Uh, and I especially am concerned about our junior faculty, those who are just starting, trying to get their research programs off the ground, trying to get their teaching off the ground, who might have, you know, young families, at, at, uh, young children at home as well. Uh, they have been particularly hard hit. And, you know, I think universities around the country and certainly at Stanford, we've tried to mitigate those effects with a, a big focus on the most vulnerable population. So those are the challenges we faced. But at the same time, what makes me hopeful is that some of the things that we've been forced to do, some of the lessons that we've learned, I think, can be very helpful as we move forward. In particular, um, this forced experiment in online work, I think, has provided us with tremendous tools to improve access in education. Now that uh, all of our faculty are so skilled uh, at online teaching, we can look uh, uh, very um, robustly at providing more online offerings for people who don't have the benefit of coming to our, our campus. In terms of access to healthcare, um, uh, one, of my, uh, one of the most remarkable statistics is that uh, right prior to the pandemic uh, at Stanford Healthcare, we had 3,000 telehealth visits a month. Now we're doing more than 3,000 a day. So uh, just an extraordinary increase, and it's something that's going to stay with us. And that increases access, makes it easier for people to access the healthcare. It can reduce costs. In many cases, it can increase effectiveness as well. Similarly, in research, there's been improved flow of information as people have created events that bring together researchers in a more seamless way globally and and nationally. So all of those are things that we can build on. And and the other thing uh, that I think we can build on um, is uh, that this past year has provided an opportunity to reflect very deeply on our values as universities and what we can offer uh, the world, Our, our Researchers have worked hard to bring solutions to fruition in breathtaking time to tackle the pandemic. We've engaged more deeply in our local communities to deliver health care, to provide support, uh, to provide 
offerings. Uh, for example, um, Stanford Live has put offerings for the arts online to make them available at a time when people need the comfort that's provided by, by the arts. And so as difficult as it's been, um, uh, what we've been forced to do over the past year provides, I think, a tremendous basis for us to multiply our impact going forward. And so that's why I'm hopeful. You know, that's a really uh, uh, inspiring answer. And uh, it sounds like there are some real silver linings to the pandemic, at least from the university perspective. Um, and uh, it, I've just gotten a question in the chat that was kind of intriguing. It said, Stanford went through the 1918 pandemic and now this one. What preparations does the university need to make that we wouldn't have made in the past going forward? Uh, that, that's a, a, a great question. The, the, um, uh, and yeah, the 1918 pandemic, of course, our, our, our scholars um, uh, went back to, to study it, um, to say, what, what did we learn then? What was done differently? Can we uh, bring some of those lessons forward? I think as we go forward, first, um, the uh, whether uh, perish the thought, uh, another uh, pandemic or some other uh, disaster. We, of course, have disaster preparedness at the university. Uh, we do simulations, um, uh, but uh, we do them primarily focusing on earthquakes, as you, you, you might imagine, um, to, to make sure that we are all set up. So what this has really brought uh, home to us is, is the importance of having protocols for de-densifying the campus, being able to continue operations in the spite of people not being able to come to campus. Um, the, the, the infrastructure that we have in place now for doing that, I think, is something that we're going to make um, uh, you know, more permanent and more robust so that if situations like this that require us to empty the campus uh, come forward, that we're better ready to, um, uh, to without missing a beat, to transition to um, you know, off-campus work and then come back. The coming back has required a lot of, of learnings as well. Um, and uh, so how to do that effectively uh, how to stage it, all the steps that are necessary that we've had to to work through, uh, but we didn't have a, a little book to guide us. So we are going to be putting together that book um, and, and put it in the context of a pandemic, but perhaps other uh, disasters, again, perish the thought uh, that would force uh, a dispersal uh, of our community. Yeah. Um, so obviously Stanford's been on the cutting edge of biomedical research for a long time. And could you just talk a little bit about what we at Stanford did in response to this pandemic and our contributions and our, um, are there uh, new avenues that are opening up because of that research? Yeah. Well, thanks for that, that question, Mary. Actually, uh, to me, the, the, the response of, of um, our researchers, our, um, our scientists, our scholars um, to the pandemic has been uh, very inspiring and, and also a model for the future. And what happened is when COVID hit to a person um, the, our, our researchers um, uh, here and also at other research universities pivoted to focus their resources on the challenge, on the, the medical side. Um, uh, they, they worked on finding solutions, for example, developing diagnostic tests. One of the very first PCR tests was stood up at Stanford well, as soon as uh, March of 2020, then scaled for the, the region, focusing on developing novel therapeutics, testing vaccines and the like, epidemiological studies to help guide um, the uh, restart of things like schools. Um, but it wasn't just in, in medicine and, and epidemiology. Other fields in the social sciences, in the humanities, worked on, on uh, important issues. Um, for example, how to reduce spread among incarcerated populations. Uh, to, to the last question uh, the, the, the questioner asked, uh, understanding how past pandemics worsened inequities and what we can do to try to, to mitigate them. Um, all of this, this work, this ferment, this focus on tackling the problem at hand um, also involved uh, uh, our, our researchers, our faculty members, 
uh, breaking down traditional barriers to collaborations, uh, collaborating with external partners in industry and in non-governmental organizations in government, and really focused on the goal of bringing solutions to fruition in, in really breathtaking time. Um, so in short, I'd say what we did was to focus on fundamental discovery, but also with an added sense of urgency to make a, a difference in record time. And we're trying to formalize that. We call this the accelerator model, um, which combines fundamental discovery, which is so key. We know that fundamental discovery leads to the most transformative advances, often in unpredictable ways. But to combine that with applied research uh, and um, to do it uh, in a way that, that really seeks to accelerate this and break down the barriers to forward motion, to collaboration, to working with regulatory agencies to break down the barriers to have uh, some of these solutions um, uh, brought to, to people, brought to, to the market. Uh, so we think this accelerator model of combining fundamental discovery with applied research um, uh, in a very intentional uh, and urgent way has promise across many fields. Uh, and I think is going to be an important part of how we do business in universities going forward. You know, obviously combining fundamental research with applied science and technology has a resonance with your own background. And I, I think the audience would really appreciate hearing a little bit more about you and how you came to be at Stanford. Oh, well, well, thank you for that, that question, Mary. Um, uh, you know, as you, you mentioned in the introduction, I'm, I'm a neuroscientist, uh, um, and uh, the, uh, when I started my, uh, my own laboratory at uh, not far from here at uh, the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, before being recruited to, to Stanford, um, I focused on uh, the problem of brain development uh, and then added that later uh, the problem of brain degeneration. And particularly in brain development, um, I was fascinated with how the brain gets wired up during embryonic and, and fetal development. I think you and, and the, the listeners probably know that the brain is made up of uh, specific cells called nerve cells that have thin extensions uh, that connect to other nerve cells to form all the neural circuits that underlie everything that our brain does. And, and the question is, how do um, these connections form? These thin extensions are called axons, have to navigate through the thicket of other cells to find just the right partners. There's guidance information to guide them there. And what we and, and other scientists were able to do was to identify um, uh, to crack the guidance code, if you will, to identify the molecules, their specific proteins that guide axons to the targets to form those connections. It was, I, I, I worked on that, I've worked on that, in fact, my entire career, because I'm fascinated with this problem of brain wiring, but it had immediate applications as well. It helped us understand how when some of this guidance information uh, doesn't work, um, uh, that you can have miswiring, which occurs in some inherited neurological disorders. Um, and uh, so the brain is not uh, perfectly wired. That information also can be used to try to regrow and, and reform connections where they've been disconnected, for example, after stroke um, or uh, spinal cord injury uh, that can lead uh, to paralysis. So that got me interested in, um, even as I remain fascinated in the basic biology, of asking how can we apply that? And one thing led to another. I was recruited to um, uh, the biotech company Genentech, also in the Bay Area, um, uh, first to, to oversee about uh, uh, you know, two-thirds of the research organization, eventually uh, the entire research organization, uh, directing 1,400 scientists in disease research and, and drug discovery. Uh, the work we did um, uh, led to, uh, I helped oversee the, the development of eight drugs that are now approved by the, the FDA. Uh, and just as important when I was there, I learned from exceptional mentors about uh, executive leadership. It's really a remarkable place. And, and I guess that set me up to be tapped to run Rockefeller University, a, a small intensive biomedical research university in New York City uh, with the opportunity to lead great scientists uh, and have a bigger impact uh, there. And then uh, eventually to be tapped uh, to Stanford uh, 
to come to my current position, uh, where I, I continue to maintain a small research lab focused on brain development uh, and degeneration. I, I guess, Mary, I'd say, um, uh, in terms of my own personal journey, I, I'm, I'm really compelled by the pursuit of science and of knowledge broadly, but also and in equal parts in, in the application of science and knowledge to tackle the world's great problems. And I also have a, a real deep appreciation for great institutions in our country that, um, uh, that foster the creation of new knowledge, that foster its application, uh, both in the academic sector, universities, but also uh, great companies uh, like Genentech. And I just feel very fortunate to have had the, these opportunities over the years. Well, I can say as an alum, I think it's a match made in heaven. So I'm really glad uh, you decided to uh, accept the invitation to be our president. Thank you. Um, so uh, obviously the theme of combining fundamental and applied science has been important in your whole career. And it's also, as I understand it, a key element in the long-term vision for Stanford and the uh, long-term uh, plans that we you have underway. Could you tell us a little bit about your vision for Stanford's future, where we're going to go? And uh, they may be interested particularly in, in hearing the focus uh, on how that would translate to real-world application more quickly, the acceleration you were talking about. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about our, the long-range vision we, we've developed at, at Stanford. Um, you know, soon after I arrived, about uh, five years ago, the, the provost and I launched uh, a long-range planning process with our entire community, with our, our faculty, our students, uh, our, our staff, our alumni, um, and uh, 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 the vision really um, that we developed there really focuses on Stanford's role as a purpose-filled university, um, and, and really the aim is to accelerate Stanford's beneficial impact on society um, uh, through our, our activities in, in three areas, in education, um, in fundamental research, uh, and also in the application of knowledge to develop solutions, uh, issues I've already touched on. But let me tell you just a little bit more about the areas of focus. Um, the, in terms of education, um, the, the, um, uh, what came out of this was our, our sense that we needed to be more intentional about educating our students to be active citizens and leaders. Um, uh, a key uh, uh, initiative that came out of this was the, direct, the development of a curriculum uh, that we're call it, calling the college curriculum. It stands for Civic, Liberal, liberal and Global Education. Uh, it's a required first-year course uh, that gives all students the opportunity to engage with ethics and civic responsibility um, in an intellectually uh, deep environment. We've uh, been piloting uh, this new curriculum this year, and I, I can't uh, wait for it to be rolled out in full um, uh, uh, in coming years. Um, so on the educational front, that's been a, a very important area of focus. Um, the second thing in our long-range vision is, of course, to support fundamental curiosity-driven research, uh, which, again, uh, as I said, is, is the basis for all transformative advances. We want our scientists to be able to continue to be at the cutting edge in, in all of their, their fields. That involves various kinds of resources and, and uh, um, uh, platforms for support of, of, of uh, research. But uh, a key component to this in our long-range vision is a special focus on ethics. Um, uh, we have an initiative that's uh, focused on the exploring the societal and ethical impacts of scientific and technological advance. Um, uh, another example is um, uh, in our focus on artificial intelligence, of course, a cutting-edge technology. Um, uh, we have created an institute uh, that is uh, uh, focused, of course, on the technology per se, but um, uh, a key focus of the Institute 
is to look at societal and human impacts. Uh, the Institute's actually called the Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence Institute to make the point that what we want to ask is how can artificial intelligence benefit society? How can we magnify the benefits and minimize um, uh, the risks and downsides? Uh, and then the third area of focus uh, beyond fundamental knowledge is really about, again, the, this, this whole issue of accelerating the application of knowledge, the translation of knowledge into solutions um, to tackle issues in, in health uh, with uh, what we're calling an innovative medicines accelerator to take scientific knowledge uh, about the, the, the body and health and disease and translate it into therapies and cures for poorly treated diseases, um, to tackle issues, uh, uh, various social problems through a program that we call the Stanford Impact Labs that tackles social problems head on in education and importantly, in sustainability. And, and, and since you asked, uh, Mary, maybe I can say a few more words about our, our work on sustainability. Yes, please. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, I think uh, we all recognize that um, ensuring the sustainability of our planet is one of the defining challenges of the 21st century. It's perhaps the defining uh, challenge. Um, and climate change in particular, we know, um, is uh, uh, a, a huge uh, a crisis. It's, it's been called um, uh, I think the, the term is apt to COVID in slow motion. Um, uh, and the parallel with COVID is that um, uh, as with COVID-19, uh, tackling climate change requires both changes in human behaviors, as well as the deployment of new technological solutions. You need both. Uh, like COVID-19, also um, uh, uh, climate change uh, transcends borders. It transcends geographic borders. Uh, it's a global problem. It also transcends disciplinary borders. Um, uh, it requires the best minds from across all disciplines to come together. And viewing this challenge, um, we, we asked ourselves, uh, uh, is the work that we're doing right now uh, all that we can do? Or if we reorganized ourselves, could we have a bigger impact in this area? And, and we, we uh, working with the faculty, um, agreed uh, that uh, if we reorganized our efforts and augmented them, that we could have a much bigger impact. So last spring, we announced um, that we were going to create a new school focused on climate and sustainability. It builds on a very strong foundation we already have um, by faculty in some of our schools and some of our interdisciplinary institutes uh, that we have established over the past 20 years. Very exciting work. But we believe that bringing them together um, in a, a more intentional way will be able to drive sustainability research uh, 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 to go faster and further um, uh, with research in the sciences and engineering, of course, but also in the social sciences, the humanities, law and business, and so forth, uh, to advance knowledge, of course, but again, with this eye on application and rapid application, the school will also include an unusual structure, what we're calling an accelerator, um, which will be uh, uh, an organization that will have uh, people, resources, um, uh, uh, equipment, uh, and the like, um, that will make it uh, uh, much more uh, straightforward for our faculty to take their ideas and to develop new solutions, new prototypes in the case of engineering solutions and scale them, new policies um, uh, and interventions. So both on the policy front and the technology front, we want to um, uh, uh, help accelerate the translation of knowledge uh, into interventions that can help uh, with the problems of climate and sustainability. I'll, I'll, I'll point out, Mary, that... Um, this is the first new school at Stanford in 70 years. Yeah. Um, and it really reflects our belief that, uh, that this is the major challenge for the, the 21st century, that we need to be focused on it in, in an intentional way. And we're hopeful that as we 
we do this uh, and as we gain traction around this problem, that, that perhaps this can serve as a model for other institutions as well. This is very exciting to hear about, and uh, you have to promise to come back and report as time goes on. <laughs> as yeah, I'd be happy to. I'd be very <laughs> happy to, yeah. So part of your comments have, have reflected this, but uh, over the last year, we've heard a lot about the financial impact of the pandemic on colleges and universities. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about how it has impacted Stanford, perhaps educate our audience a little bit on university finances, because I know as a trustee, it, it's really quite different than it looks sometimes to the outside um, and, and just where you see that going. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. Of course, it, it's been a, a difficult uh, time uh, uh, across higher education and, and also at Stanford. And I, I alluded to this uh, in, in my response to one of your earlier questions. But to, to you know, give you a bit more um, color on this, uh, you know, at the university, we, we rely on funds from a variety of sources, um, from uh, student tuition um, and room and board, uh, of course, um, uh, external funding for um, our research, uh, a lot of it from government agencies, but also from, from other sources as well. Uh, returns of our endowment investments in, in the market um, you know, provide um, uh, uh, some uh, significant uh, uh, funding uh, that we use for primarily faculty salaries and financial aid. Um, and also additional sources, uh, summer programs, executive education programs, we have other, other sources of revenues uh, as well. Well, um, and, and we are, you know, what I just described is, is true for, for um, other universities too, of course. Um, well, the, the pandemic has made this uh, a challenging time because many of those um, sources of, of funding have been uh, seriously compromised, which led to uh, loss of revenues, catastrophic losses of revenues in, in many cases. Um, and, and, and again, I, I mentioned, especially for some small colleges um, uh, that uh, had quite tight budgets, it's really created dire straits. Some have actually been forced to close. And I, I should mention that uh, I think this is a loss for all of higher education. I think uh, the higher education system in our country um, is really benefits from having a great diversity of different kinds of, of universities and colleges, um, uh, very large um, uh, research universities, some of the state schools, uh, medium-sized research universities like, like Stanford, small liberal arts colleges. Each one of them plays their part. And, and to see some of them struggle and in, in some cases uh, 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 disappear has been very tough this year. Um, at, at Stanford, um, uh, we uh, uh, also faced this catastrophic loss of revenues. Um, we made some painful budget cuts initially. Um, I, I should say we, we had built up a reserve over the previous decade since the last downturn in 2008, 2009. Um, and uh, fortunately, we had created that. So we were able to draw that down, which helped us navigate the, the initial downturn. That's why we had built up that reserve. Uh, but uh, last summer, we had to make difficult decisions that led to some layoffs, uh, closing open searches for new faculty, freezing um, all salary, cutting some of the executive salaries, um, uh, pausing programs. All of that enabled us to, to weather um, the storm. Uh, now, the rebounding market returns and also the, the fact that we can see um, you know, revenue streams uh, in our sites um, uh, as we come back to normal and as we can plan for an in-person fall for our students. Um, uh, uh, that makes me very hopeful that we're going to emerge firmly from the pandemic after what has been a, a very, very difficult year for, for our community and for higher education in general across the country. Well, thanks for explaining that. And uh, obviously, I'm getting some uh, questions in the chat about the decision to cut 11 sports teams, which obviously were related to some of the financial decisions you were making. Could you uh, talk a little bit about 
that decision and where you see athletics going, and in particular, whether there's a chance that some of those sports might come back. Right. Yeah, thank you. So that's a very Stanford-specific um, uh, uh, issue. Um, uh, first, I should say that, that we, we, um, uh, we truly believe in the, the student-athlete model. Um, the, the level of uh, accomplishment of our student-athletes at, at Stanford is, is remarkable. Uh, academically, they're on par with our other students, but they also pursue sports at the very highest levels. Uh, one, one of my favorite um, uh, anecdotes, Mary, in, in this context is um, that soon after I started um, uh, at Stanford in um, uh, 2016, in September 2016, um, uh, it was right after the Rio Olympics. And um, uh, uh, what was remarkable is that at those Olympics, uh, Stanford students and alumni uh, won more medals d- than did my home country of Canada, uh, which uh, filled me simultaneously with Stanford pride and, and Canadian embarrassment, <laughs> I should say. So uh, we think our, our students are, are exceptional. They, they um, uh, just add so much to our campus community. We're so proud of them. The problem that we faced is, is the, the um, challenging and, and changing financial model for intercollegiate athletics uh, nationwide. It's fiercely competitive. Uh, there have been escalating costs um, to date. Um, you know, if we go back to a year ago, Stanford was offering twice the national average of varsity sports for Division I universities in the country, but with a much smaller budget um, than many of, of those universities. We don't have the same revenues from ticket sales or media rights than, than many of our, our competitors in, in other uh, jurisdictions. Uh, we have a, a philosophy of not using tuition dollars to, to subsidize athletics, that athletics has to be uh, self-sustaining through, through revenue and, and philanthropy, which I, I hope your listeners can can appreciate. So we've operated with a very lean budget. And what had become clear in the years leading up to our decision last summer was that this was uh, becoming unsustainable. And after um, uh, considering many alternatives, we, we made the, the difficult and, and heartbreaking decision to eliminate um, uh, some of the sports. Um, and uh, uh, there has been a recent development. However, um, there's a, a group of alumni, uh, alumni from the sports and, and others who are uh, enthusiasts of the sports who proposed a different approach to tackling the, the financial problem um, and uh, um, uh, to be able to um, uh, uh, meet these financial challenges through um, uh, additional philanthropy for the 11 sports. We've met with them. Uh, we've had very constructive conversations. We're evaluating their proposal. Um, at this point in time, uh, we, we expect to come to a decision in, in coming weeks. Um, so stay tuned. Um, uh, at this point, we we always you know, uh, are, are, are happy to hear good ideas, and uh, we have a, uh, a very engaged and constructive group uh, that we are interacting with. Well, thanks for that. I think it's a very uh, helpful explanation. Uh, obviously, um, related to this is the affordability of higher education uh, relates to the financial status of the university, but also all of the finances of the families who send their, their sons and daughters to Stanford. Uh, could you just talk about where that's headed? Yes, well, uh, affordability and access, I think, are, are issues across all of higher education. If we, um, uh, if you ask uh, the, the general public, uh, what is their biggest concern about uh, higher education? It, it's access and affordability. And, and certainly, this is something that's been front and center for us uh, that we worked on for well over a decade. Um, and, and a key um, uh, uh, aspect uh, to how we tackle this issue is through robust financial aid. Um, so for well over a decade now, uh, Stanford has offered need-blind admissions. Uh, that means that 
uh, students apply to us and uh, we, we don't look at their financial circumstances and we just ask, uh, is this a student uh, that we, we, we think would, would do well at Stanford and we think should, should be here? And so we make them an offer. Uh, and once they, they are in, then we work with them to make it possible for them to attend Stanford, whatever their background and whatever their means. And maybe I can describe a few of the, the components of our, our financial aid uh, package. Um, uh, so, so families, uh, students from families um, uh, that earn less than $75,000 a year pay um, no tuition, room, or board. They have a, a, a full ride. Um, uh, fam- uh, students from families with incomes below $150,000 pay no tuition. Um, and there's a sliding scale. So even for higher incomes, there's financial aid that occurs as well. And, and because of this support, um, 82% of our students graduate without any debt whatsoever. Um, and because of this level of financial aid, if you, you look at the net cost of, a, of um, uh, attending um, uh, Stanford for students from low and middle income families, when you factor in the financial aid, we are among the most affordable universities in the country, including both public and private universities. Um, uh, I should, and this has really helped with access. So um, just st- a statistic, um, uh, 20% um, of Stanford's newest class of undergraduates are first-generation college students. Their, their parents didn't go to college. Uh, I myself am a first-generation student. So my, my, my parents didn't go to college. So this is something that's extremely meaningful uh, to me, extremely important to me, and something that I'm very proud of. And we have, we have massively increased the number of students as a result of putting in place uh, those financial aid uh, uh, programs. I, I should mention, in the, the, you know, with the pandemic, um, uh, uh, people have been financially challenged as well, and we've increased financial support for our students, um, uh, as well as in many cases for fi- uh, faculty and staff. Uh, I should also say that our, our efforts aren't isolated. So, so we are really focused on this issue of access. Um, there uh, are other universities like ours that have a similarly robust financial aid and also, there's a consortium. We're, we're a member of uh, an initiative called the American Talent Initiative. Um, it's uh, 132 colleges and universities uh, around the country. It's focused very in- intentionally on this issue of access. And, and the goal that's been set by the consortium is, is by 2025 to enroll and graduate 50,000 additional high-achieving, low- and moderate-income students at the nation's top colleges and, and universities. And we work together um, uh, to enhance efforts to, to recruit and support lower-income students. We learn from one another. We exchange best practices. Uh, we do research on, on what it will take to continue to expand opportunity. Um, so we, we still have a long way to go, but I'm hopeful that we can make progress both through individual efforts, like what we do at Stanford, but also, more, I think, more, even more importantly, through collective efforts uh, like that with the American Talent Initiative. That sounds very promising. Thank you. Uh, let's just broaden the conversation a little bit and uh, talk about some of the big issues facing society right now. Uh, racial justice has obviously been at the forefront of our national conversation over the last year. What role do you see the universities playing in advancing social justice? Well, yeah, Mary, it's been uh, almost a year since uh, George Floyd's brutal murder, and, and I think it's, it's painfully clear uh, how much work remains to be done across society in general and also uh, at our own university. And uh, I think um, colleges and universities, uh, places like Stanford, have a, have a two-part role to play. Uh, first, uh, uh, you know, really deploying our um, ability to do deep research and scholarship to advance a more just society uh, by learning and understanding and illuminating 
uh, the different types of injustice, of bias um, uh, uh, that exist, um, what's at the root of them, uh, what uh, effects are structural, what other factors contribute, what can be done to counter them, just garnering that knowledge to make it available so that pe- in an actionable form so that people can work on it is, is one role for the universities. But uh, an equally important role, of course, is, is for us to, to shine a spotlight on ourselves uh, and to really combat racism in our own community uh, and to work to ensure um, that our own campus communities are, are safe and, and inclusive. Um, at, at Stanford, um, this has been part of our mission for a long time. Uh, we have a, a program, um, uh, an initiative that came out of our long-range planning process, part of our long-range vision, um, that we call IDEAL. It, uh, it's an acronym that stands for Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access in a Learning uh, Community. So we put a number of programs in place starting um, uh, about three years ago, building on work that had been done previously. But uh, this last year, I think, has galvanized us further. It's particularly urgent now. Um, I, I last summer, in, in the wake of, of uh, uh, many of those tragic events, I, I held uh, listening sessions with with students, um, with faculty, with staff, and um, I, I was humbled by how they shared their experiences and, and ideas for how we can make our community stronger. And, and those ideas have really informed our, our way forward. So last uh, summer and in the fall, we announced a number of new initiatives to further advance these goals, just as a couple examples. Um, uh, in terms of uh, focusing on our community, we created a community board on public safety that's looking at safety on our campus and our policing methods to make recommendations um, uh, for reforms for how we do this and, and provide an, an avenue for community feedback. Um, on the, the research side, we made significant investments to enrich our, our community of scholars focused on race and ethnicity and the impacts uh, uh, of race and ethnicity, including a fellows program that supports the work of early career researchers in, in race and ethnicity. Uh, we hired our first cohort uh, under this new program. Uh, uh, it was announced just uh, last month. And, um, and also a faculty cluster hire uh, where we're, we're searching for 10 scholars who are leaders in the, the study of race in America. Uh, I should mention that a, a normal cluster hire at a university is about three or four. I think this is uh, one of the largest, if not the largest in Stanford's history and, and maybe even in, in the country. Um, and we, we believe that by bringing them together, we will be able to augment and accelerate our work in these areas, uh, which we think is so important as well. Uh, do you, how are the students reacting and are they uh, forming groups and, and how are they dealing with it? The, the, the students um, are very engaged, Mary, and, and we see this um, in, at multiple levels. First of all, there are pan-university organizations of students who've come together, some of whom have been really uh, uh, just superb thought partners for us as we engage with them. Uh, and they, they, as I said, bring their experiences to us, but also um, bring ideas for um, uh, uh, what we could change to do better. They've been very important to, to work with. Also, we see even at the level of individual departments, uh, students self-assembling, and this has been particularly prominent among our, our graduate and professional students, uh, where department by department, um, because the, the, the makeup of the departments is different, the, the way people work is different, if you're in biology versus chemistry versus sociology, uh, and they've come together to share their own experiences and, and talk about what, it will, will, uh, what will be required to create um, a more inclusive, a more diverse uh, place, and coming up with very specific actionable uh, recommendations on changes to how you know, courses uh, are given, changes to the types of structures that are to support students, changes in how we go out and, and find students, encourage them to apply and, and recruit them to, to Stanford. So the, the students have been extremely active. In fact, 
one of the things that we, we were talking about just recently was it's really important for us to capture all of this really outstanding activity, and make sure that we can build on it, that it isn't lost um, over time, because there is so much um, passion, I would say, right now. And we have to, this is a moment for us to, to build on that passion, to seize it, to really try to affect change that is, is so needed. Um, you know, I'm getting some questions in the chat, but also I had it on my list. Uh, another big issue facing society broadly is the polarization and misinformation uh, crisis. And um, particularly in the university, which uh, has a strong culture of academic freedom at the central value of the university, how do you, how do you see dealing with this and how can Stanford help with this problem? Well, you're absolutely right, uh, Mary, this and and the people who are asking the question, this is uh, a really big issue, especially important today when when, uh, a lot of misinformation is pervasive. Um, And uh, the the, the university in many ways is a microcosm of society. Um, We we, um, at the university have people with very diverse and very strongly held views on, on our campus. Um, and the way I think about it is to really step back and ask ourselves, what, what's the fundamental mission of, of the university or one of our, what are our fundamental missions? And, and one of them, a really core central one, is um, to enable truth-seeking, to enable uh, our individuals to search for the truth. We are part in a research mission. Um, uh, uh, we we um, uh, want to enable our, our scholars, our researchers, to advance knowledge by searching for the truth. And in terms of education, we believe it's important for our students to be exposed to a diversity of views and opinions so they can form their own judgments and be prepared for a world in which they're going to be faced with a diversity of views uh, and opinions. Um, so because of, of that, uh, one of our, our bedrock functions as a university is to provide space for intellectual diversity and for robust and vigorous debate. Um, uh, again, so getting at the truth requires uh, not just deep domain expertise, but also an openness to different points of view, an openness to being critiqued, to modifying your point of view. That it's a very iterative process, um, and so it's vital to provide an environment where new ideas can be hatched and developed, but where they can face critique, where they can strengthen and flourish in, in the face of challenge. And and that is best achieved, we believe, if we have an environment where people can hold strong opinions, but where they come together to debate them um, uh, in a respectful way. Um, to, to disagree, if you will, without being disagreeable. Um, now, uh, importantly, we can't mandate respectful discourse. But what we can do as an institution is try to model it, try to uphold it as a norm uh, in, in, in the university. Um, in the case of our students, uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, my excitement over this new curriculum that we're putting in, in, in place, the, the college curriculum, civic, liberal, and global education and again, it's designed so that all students in their first year have the opportunity to engage deeply and, and intellectually with, with issues that um, uh, uh, you know, are confronting us with society, with ethical issues, with issues of, of, of civic um, responsibility. I'd say after the events of January 6th um, this year, it's especially important and timely that we, we, our students think of their roles as engaged citizens in society. And we want, through this course, to provide them with the opportunity to be challenged, to refine their ideas, to disagree constructively uh, and and consider particularly challenging ethical and and social problems. Um, So the bottom line is it's crucial that all members of our community feel free to express their views, to tackle areas of scholarship they think are important, uh, but also to provide an environment where they can learn from one another. And that's what we try to build and model. And, and I would say this course in the case of our students is going to be an important pillar in that, but other mechanisms as well to enable 
uh, constructive, at times hard-hitting, but constructive debate. So that's, I, I think, an important role uh, for us as a university. Sounds good. Um, I'm getting some questions in the chat about, uh, obviously, the supply and demand for students to get into these top universities, especially Stanford, which I understand is maybe the toughest in the country right now. Um, what do you think about access uh, to this kind of education? And are there things through the pandemic and other uses of technology that may allow us to uh, make it more broadly available? Uh, the the um, uh, Mary, that's a really important um, uh, question. We we um, uh, do every year have to uh, turn away um, uh, many more students than than we can uh, accept, uh, and it, it breaks our heart. We see so many students who would benefit from a Stanford education. Uh, we're heartened by the fact that that many of them have opportunities at other universities. I mentioned the the higher education ecosystem in the United States. And, and one of the, 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 the wonderful things about our country is that there is such a diversity of institutions. At the same time, we believe that we at Stanford should be doing more. Um, uh, we have ongoing discussions about increasing uh, the undergraduate class size. That's certainly something um, that we would like to do. There are a number of things that have to fall in place uh, to achieve that. As important, perhaps more important, uh, going back to this issue of, of online education that I, I mentioned earlier, that um, we, before the pandemic, we had uh, concluded that we should be uh, working uh, more deliberately, more intentionally to um, uh, 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 extend our educational reach through online offerings, um, trying to figure out where we can make a difference, um, uh, what types of students uh, we should um, uh, try to reach out to um, uh, so that we can uh, you know, multiply our, our impact to students who don't have the benefit of coming uh, to campus. Well, with the pandemic now, um, we, we've learned so much about online teaching, what works, what doesn't work. We have a school of education that's studying this to, to try to get the best lessons out of, of this, and we can make them you know, some best practices going forward. But now we are very motivated uh, to, to really accelerate um, uh, that part of our agenda, which is to, uh, to create offerings that can extend our educational reach to many, many more students than those who could attend our campus. So I think a combination of expanding class size um, and, and also uh, extending uh, our reach through online offerings, or in some cases, hybrid offerings, where most is done online and they come to, to campus for a short period of time, is something that we, we see as an important part of our future. It'll be interesting to see where that goes. Thank you. Um, obviously, you're a scientist, but uh, with a, uh, a very broad uh, mandate at Stanford, what do you see as the role of arts and humanities nowadays, and how does that fit into the curriculum at Stanford and, and its development? Yeah, the the uh, well, I'm I'm really glad you asked that question, Mary. The, the people sometimes will say, "Well, um, uh, is is Stanford a STEM school?" And and my answer is no. The the, the we are very proud of our our science. We're very proud of our engineering, our computer science. But what makes Stanford, I think, um, so special is um, the the breadth of our strength across all disciplines. Um, the strength in the the humanities, the arts the social sciences. We are as strong as we are in the natural sciences and in engineering. The same is true for our professional schools in business, in law, in education, in, in medicine. Um, and uh, so the, in fact, the, the beauty of Stanford is that we're all in a very compact campus where all these disciplines are together, which really facilitates interdisciplinary interactions, which are so important for the future. I was talking earlier about sustainability. Um, the, the, uh, some people think, oh, that's about making better batteries or advancing you know, renewable energy technologies. Well, yes, those are really important. Carbon capture is really important. But just as important is human behavior. 
How do we organize ourselves to ensure the uptake of green technologies? Uh, how do we um, uh, 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 look at uh, you know, providing uh, food or transportation or, or other uh, modalities to, to various populations? You need the social scientists to be working together with the engineers. You need the, the, um, uh, the people in uh, law and policy working together with the scientists. Uh, none of this will get, making a great technology is of no use unless you can apply it as well. So that's just one more reason why having all of that together is so important. So uh, your question was, what is the, the place of the arts and, and humanities at, at Stanford? I'd say it's central. Um, the, the, um, and I'm especially excited. Uh, the, the humanities have been strong for, for, for so long at Stanford and continue to go from strength to strength. Uh, the arts, as you, you may know, over the past decade, and, and Mary, you saw this, you were a trustee, I guess about 15 years ago, uh, just the, the creation of an arts district with uh, the Bing Concert Hall and adding to our existing uh, uh, wonderful museum, Cantor Museum, the Anderson Collection, uh, creating studio spaces and the like. All of that's happened in the past 10 years or so, and it's really transformed the face of the arts at Stanford. And as I said, during the pandemic, our arts community has really uh, played an important role both in, in providing um, uh, 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 you know, spiritual succor to our, our campus community, but also to our neighboring communities. And we're thrilled that actually we've been able to reopen um, our museums and um, our, our, our venues for live events also that we're just starting to do it, uh, you know, taking baby steps um, uh, as the, the uh, health conditions permit. Um, so uh, we believe that Stanford is an important uh, place uh, for the arts and destination for the arts and artists. Um, uh, and uh, we uh, certainly, I'm passionate about this uh, and uh, we'll be working hard with our community to make sure uh, that it continues to grow and remain vibrant. I'm sure listeners are very excited to hear that the arts are opening back up at Stanford. That's, that's great. And uh, thank you for that uh, broad picture of the future of arts and humanities. Um, it's important, obviously. So we're four months into um, a new presidential administration, and what measures would you like to see the Biden, the Biden administration take with respect to higher education? Right. Um, the you know, very important um, uh, question, uh, you know, both on the research front and the education front, I think um, the, 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 the new administration has already taken um, early steps to address a number of issues that, that had been uh, of concern to us for some time. Um, the first is uh, we, we really believe um, it's important to continue to invest in, in research, both fundamental research and applied research. Uh, you know, U.S. universities have historically, uh, you know, in our country, uh, our research universities have been drivers of innovation, uh, innovation in health, innovations that lead to economic growth and well-being, innovations that are important for national security. Um, and uh, it's really been a, the, the engine of discovery that has then enabled application by other parts of society as well. Um, now, the U.S. still invests more uh, in R&D in absolute amount than any other country, but as a percentage of GDP, I, I think um, uh, everybody's aware that we're now trailing many countries, and we, we risk falling further behind as, as some competitors, uh, competitors, especially China, uh, continue to increase their investment. Um, so we, we believe it's important for us to um, uh, maintain uh, and expand uh, uh, those investments. Um, uh, we also uh, think that it, it, uh, an important aspect of this will be to focus on research infrastructure. Um, the infrastructure is not up to today's uh, demands. We have some an extraordinary um, set of national labs that provide very unique 
scientific capabilities um, that are needed for uh, R&D, for example, in advanced manufacturing and in information technology and in biomedical research and in energy uh, research. And uh, renewing that infrastructure and continue to invest in it will be very important. The, the, the kinds of, of laboratory specialized instruments that can be used by many scientists around the country, of course, multiply their effects um, and enable many communities of scientists in our country. Uh, so research um, support, uh, but also um, continuing, uh, I believe it's so important um, that we continue to support access to education, which again is a real priority for us. And, and we were very pleased to see that the American Families Plan uh, proposes, uh, I think it's uh, uh, about 80 billion um, in investment in Pell Grants, um, uh, including increasing uh, grant sizes uh, uh, for low-income students. We think that's a great move to, to help increase access to higher education in our country as well. Again, it takes multiple approaches by multiple parties, and, and the, the federal government has an important role to, to play there, in addition to the universities and colleges. Um, I also think, uh, Mary, it's really important to, to consider um, research and education in the global context, um, in, in research to make sure that we continue to support international collaboration. Um, you know, COVID-19 highlighted this. Um, scientific collaboration was crucial as insights came from China, from Europe, from the U.S., from other countries in understanding the virus and developing um, uh, therapies and developing vaccines um, uh, in, in looking at the societal impacts of, of the pandemic. Uh, uh, many, most, uh, perhaps of our, our biggest challenges are global um, and uh, requires a global network of, of scholars and researchers uh, to work on them together. Uh, so it's important that we're able to collaborate in appropriate ways with researchers abroad. It's also important for us to be able to tap into extraordinary talent um, uh, abroad in both research and, and education. Uh, we think it's very important to support immigration policies that attract the best and, and the brightest. Um, we rely on, on international students and international scholars to uh, fill a domestic talent gap in STEM fields, uh, for example. And uh, those scholars bring very rich backgrounds. They contribute to a learning environment and, and bring unique perspectives to our research uh, teams. Uh, as a foreign student myself, I'm a Canadian national, but I uh, came to the U.S. after I finished all my education um, uh, my PhD and, and, and came here for postdoctoral work um, to finish my, my training uh, and then decided to stay in the U.S. Uh, the, the issue of uh, enabling um, our country to, to uh, attract uh, and retain the best scientists from abroad, of course, is a very personal one uh, for me as well. And, um, and in that context, uh, of course, I think it's important to, to, to note that the immigration landscape has been uh, challenging in recent years. Uh, their concerns have been raised um, and appropriate concerns about safeguarding national security, about economic competitiveness, uh, fears of theft of intellectual property and the like. Uh, we believe those are important concerns. We believe that universities should be attentive to these concerns. We're very focused on them. We believe in taking the appropriate steps to do this. But we need to do this in a way that does not chill and prevent scientific collaboration. Um, in the last few years, a perception has been rising that the U.S. is inhospitable to foreign nationals, and I think that's very much to the detriment of higher education in our country. So uh, we really believe in taking the appropriate steps um, to address legitimate concerns, but to do it in a way that still makes the U.S. be a very hospitable place, a welcoming place, a place that's attractive um, to, uh, to foreign students and foreign scholars who bring their extraordinary talents here and help 
um, uh, build our country and help solve problems for not just our country, but the world as well. Um, I guess I, 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 I should also mention in terms of um, uh, uh, the, the new administration, a very important for us is we believe it's so important that we get a legislative solution for uh, DACA recipients, the, the dreamers and, and undocumented youth, uh, who we believe deserve the opportunity to, to gain legal resident status and, and a pathway to citizenship and, and to flourish in our society. So we're, we're very eager to see progress on that front as well. How does Stanford actually try to influence the legislative process? <clears throat> well, we, we work um, both directly ourselves uh, and also through um, our trades organizations. Uh, we have uh, groups of universities, for example, in the Association of American Universities, 65 of the, the, the leading research universities in, in the United States, um, uh, who, who work um, uh, uh, directly. We work to, uh, uh, to um, uh, uh, come up with um, ideas, policies, interventions, uh, and to, uh, to interface uh, in Washington with uh, people in, uh, in Congress. Um, we do that uh, locally as well. Um, so we're very active in, in interacting uh, with uh, the, the whole uh, political process um, uh, uh, and administration in Washington. I myself spent time in Washington meeting with uh, uh, peoples in, in both houses as well as um, uh, in some cases uh, uh, you know, in the administration. Um, uh, and so we, we try to remain very uh, active and, and connected um, to have our voice heard um, and, uh, and really try to, to push for um, uh, changes that we think are important um, to, to benefit um, uh, you know, our country uh, by supporting uh, research and education and access. Thanks. Um... I'm getting a lot of questions in the chat from parents who uh, have children who are in high school and are thinking about college, and uh, some probably have aspirations of hoping their children would go to Stanford. What advice do you have to parents as as they guide their students, particularly in light of the fact that the supply-demand situation is so difficult for admission to Stanford? Yeah, so the, the I mean, my best advice to, to people is the advice I gave my, my own um, three kids, um, which is, you know, the the, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, obviously, if you, if you want to go to college, you should work hard uh, on your, your academics, uh, but also you should, you should uh, try to pursue, um, you know, your additional interests uh, as well. Um, you know, find something that is uh, of interest to you uh, and try to build on it so that you can you know, develop that aspect of, of your personality, your character, uh, 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 put it together with um, your academic accomplishments um, and uh, you know, try to convince the, the university that you would be uh, a, a, a great and important addition to, to the class. Uh, as I said, what, what, it breaks our heart that we have to turn down uh, qualified students. Um, we really wish we could have more, and we really hope that we can admit more um, over time. Um, but uh, the important thing is uh, you know, for, for the students to um, uh, really look at college as an opportunity, whichever college they go to, uh, to really um, uh, uh, blossom and, and flourish and prepare themselves for life beyond. I think Stanford is a, a, a great place to do that. I, I know there are other institutions that are uh, fabulous places uh, as well. Um, uh, but, you know, you know really just uh, push hard to, um, uh, to write, try to, um, you know, reach your dreams. That's good. Thanks. Um, you know, as you look out, and I know you're, an, you're kind of a natural visionary, but as you look out five to 10 to 15 years, what do you see uh, universities doing in the future that will help the world? 
Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Mary. And, and maybe, um, I, I guess I would say, um, I probably touched on, on, on some of the, the major strands of that already. So maybe I can pull it together here that, you know, if I, if I, especially reflecting on the last difficult year, um, uh, I, I think, uh, I, you know, there are three lessons from this experience, um, that, uh, really, uh, speak to the direction of higher education, uh, writ large, um, uh, I think, uh, you know, the first is um, this idea that in addition to doing deep scholarship that advances knowledge in a very foundational way, which is really at the core of the activities of all uh, research universities around the country, that um, the application of knowledge, which is already part of what we do, but um, uh, to do it in a more um, uh, uh, urgent and accelerated way, a more intentional way is something that I think um, uh, we, are we certainly are going to build on and which I expect other universities will as well. We've seen its potential through COVID. We're now deploying it broadly to many other um, issues. And so moving forward with this focus on, on, on um, uh, deep scholarship, but then uh, being poised to rapidly apply knowledge to tackle the world's great problems, I think um, it is something that uh, is going to become part and parcel of who we are uh, and I believe um, uh, higher education in general. Um, I'd say also this intense experiment with the online format is really going to fundamentally change um, uh, what we do in so many ways in, in delivering healthcare, in education, in the arts, in increasing research interchanges. Um, it, it's going to change our approach to work more broadly. I know everybody is talking right now about work from home. How much will that be part of what we do? Whatever uh, field or industry you're in currently, everybody's having those those discussions. The same is true at, at universities, um, and and I think the third thing and and very important, um, uh, I believe, and and certainly very important to me is this recommitment of universities to our public mission, um, really committed to amplifying our engagement with our our region, our nation, and the world, building ties that have been forged in in this time of hardship to really try to multiply our beneficial impact beyond what we do to educate students uh, and, uh, and to advance deep foundational knowledge. Well, that's, that's really inspiring. Thank you. Um, you know, just to turn back just briefly to the international students and the pandemic, uh, what has been the impact on those students and uh, have they been able to get through it okay, as far as you can see? This has been very trying for, for our international students, Mary. There, first of all, there, there are many who had visa issues who, who you know, couldn't get into to um, uh, the country, and also travel restrictions, of course, um, imposed by by various kinds of, of lockdowns. Um, uh, for those of them who uh, were at home in in countries that uh, may be in very different time zones, the the um, the online experience has been very difficult as well. I, I had an exchange with a, a young woman uh, in Korea uh, talking about she became basically a night night owl, getting up. Oh, yeah. uh, in the middle of the night to to be able to sit in on classes and and um, teaching herself and coaching herself to to live that way, but you you can do that for a short period of time but but it 's not something you can do uh, for an extended period of time so so many of them have had real difficulties um, and and the difficulties are not over there's still issues with some traveling back uh, to the u s right now there's still issues with visas actually there's been some progress recently uh, with with visas um, uh, again uh, another welcome development. Uh, from Washington that, that should accelerate people getting visas, but there may be still re travel restrictions in place. So we've tried to work with them. Uh, a number of them, as you might expect, just took leaves of absence, took a quarter off, took a year off. Um, but uh, many, are they're, they're just eager to get back and to be able to be back here to, 
to study, and, and we are, are trying to support them. Uh, and, and it's a lot of one-on-one individual work with, with these students who are very severely affected. So it is a very poignant um, situation, Mary, and, and one we, we really just look forward to getting through it as soon as possible. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, unfortunately, we're getting to the uh, end of our time, and there's just time for one more question. Um, and I just wonder what you would love your legacy to be at Stanford. Uh, well, that's a uh, uh, great question. I, I guess um, uh, if you know, fifteen years from now, twenty people, twenty years from now, people are, are looking back and 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 saying, you know, what what does uh, you know what happened under my tenure? Uh, I, I guess I'd be. I, I hope that they would say that working together with um, uh, our community, with our faculty, with our students, our staff, that we reimagined the university um, as a purposeful university trying to increase its beneficial impact on society that yes, even as we pursued our our fundamental missions of research and education, we were doing this with an eye uh, to making sure that we benefit society as a whole in in the deepest way. Well, President Tessier-Levine, thank you so much for this wonderful uh, program today. Um, We also want to thank all our viewers. Uh, I'm Mary Cranston, and now this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. Stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.